Colossians 3. And also Ephesians 5. Okay, two places. I'm going to have to use your little fingers. One in one place, one in the other. So Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. Colossians is a book that we're studying. We're nearing the end. We'll be wrapping it up in the next few weeks. But we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3. We happen to be in verses 18 and 19 this morning. It says in Colossians 3.18, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Very important topic this morning concerning Christian marriages. Not everybody in the sanctuary is married, I realize that, but most of you will be at one time or another. It's good to get these things straight before you mess with somebody else's life. So whether you're married or not, this is very important this morning. Paul is rather succinct here in his explanation in Colossians, so we're going to move to Ephesians 5 now where we have a fuller explanation of the biblical model of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, a parallel account somewhat. We'll start reading in verse 21. Ephesians 5 verse 21. It says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, the, that she should be holy and blameless. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us this morning. And we just read your word, Lord, but we would ask that this morning, by the work of the Holy Spirit, your word would read us. We're going to study your word together. But we ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, your word would study our lives and would discern if there's any wayward way in us. Anything that has departed from the principles and the precepts and the absolute truth of your word, and anything that has taken on worldliness and worldly conceptions, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are to order ourselves under your leadership and your word. And so help us now to reject everything else, every other voice, every other opinion, every philosophy and to come with open Bibles and open hearts before your Spirit and say, instruct us, read us, study us as we read and study the Word, and do a work in us. And Lord, we stand firm together this morning as a body against the attacks that are coming against marriage in this nation. We stand firm together for the biblical model of marriage, for what you say it ought to be. God, it's your thing. You created it. You ordained it. You get to define it. So we just ask that you would continue to do that in this nation and in the world. We ask that you would strengthen us to stand for righteousness, to be salt and to be light. You would strengthen us to be doers of your word. These are critical times in which we live. 
So make us wise this morning, Lord. Speak to us wonderfully and powerfully. And Lord, for those who aren't married, but maybe wish they were, would you keep them from sadness this morning? Lord, would you help them to just rejoice in the good things of your word and in your awesome wisdom instead of being sad about their situation? Would you just bless them and grace them and cover their heart? And for those who have been divorced, Lord, and they're sad about it this morning, I just pray a covering of grace over their hearts. They know that things went wrong. I pray you just grace them and bless them and they too would just be able to rejoice in the good things of your word. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is called The Spirit-Filled Family, Husbands and Wives. We've come to a part in the book of Colossians and parallel here in the book of Ephesians where Paul is dealing with family relationships. And so for the next couple weeks, we're looking at what it means to have a spirit-filled family, particularly today, husbands and wives. The first part of that title is very important, spirit-filled, for two reasons. Number one, these things that we'll learn about marriage today are distinctly Christian. Now, marriage was given to the whole world as a gift by God. Believers and non-believers alike, the whole world marriage is given to the world as a gift by the Creator. But the New Testament revolutionizes the way that people are to perceive marriage and gives us an incredible revelation, unprecedented in history, about how a marriage is to look. And the opinion here, the opinion, the truth here given to us in the New Testament is absolutely distinct to Christianity. There's no other religion that agrees with it. Ancient Judaism didn't agree with it. They treated uh, marriage very differently, as does much of modern Judaism. Islam certainly does not agree with these things, nor does any other world religion. They are distinctly Christian. But more importantly, as we think about that title, the Spirit-Filled Family, you must know that we have to have as a prerequisite a continual filling of the Holy Spirit if we hope to live these things to any degree whatsoever. It is a prerequisite for living these Christian ideals of marriage that we are continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is why two weeks ago we stopped everything and just talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit and how that works out relationally in our lives. And at the end of this sermon today, many of us will be asking for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are desperately in need thereof. These concepts that we'll learn from the New Testament today are rejected by the world and by popular culture. They're attacked on every front and at every corner. They're rejected as archaic, sometimes barbaric, out of date, irrelevant. Nothing could be further from the truth. And for Christians, these are not options. They're not marital suggestions. They are the wisdom of God. And they are directives. They are commands for every Christian man, every Christian woman. And they are God's design for marriage. And I've got a little bit of news for you. God does not accept the work of other designers. He's a creator of the whole world. He's a creator of marriage. He gets to dictate what it ought to look like. He is a designer. And many people in society today, they want to redefine and redesign marriage. They don't have the right to do that. It's created by God, ordained by God. It's defined by God. Amen? Unfortunately, many Christians have bought into the redefinitions that have been forwarded in society. 
They bought into the new ideas and the philosophies. That is evidenced by the fact that the divorce rate is now as high inside the church as it is outside the church. That is evidence that the church is becoming increasingly worldly in many ways, but particularly in its view of marriage and how it ought to work out. Now, there are three key biblical concepts that we must understand this morning if we're going to comprehend God's design for marriage. They are this. Number one, headship. Number two, submission. And number three, sacrifice. We have to have a grasp on these three biblical concepts. Headship, submission, and sacrifice. I want to speak with you first about headship. Headship has to do with order. Our God is a God of order. Amen? That is seen in every single facet of creation. From the hydrological cycle, to the solar system, to, the, to, to how atoms are made, to the structure of our DNA. It is very clear that God is a God of order when we observe creation and the God-designed laws that govern it. In a smaller sense now, it is also observable that God is a God of order and the way that He orchestrates the institutions that he ordains, such as the Old Testament worship structure, the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. These things were dictated by God, every detail, and they were extremely orderly. Has anybody read Leviticus lately? Extreme order given to the institution of Old Testament worship as God structured it. The New Testament church. Same thing. There is an order given by God as to how the New Testament church ought to function. We see it in Acts chapter 2. We see it in Timothy chapter 3. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 5. We see it throughout the New Testament that there is an ecclesiastical order that God has given by which the church is to conduct itself. We see it in world governments. God has ordered government. We see that in Romans chapter 13 and in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we see in marriage... The first institution ever ordained by God that there is an order that is to be upheld within the marriage context. And the order that God has ordained for all these things in society functions in the context of the submission authority principle. Listen to that. The order that God has ordained for all these things in society function in the context of the submission authority principle. You know this. There always has to be somebody who is in authority and then there's got to be somebody who is in submission. When that is not the case, you either have chaos or anarchy or both. There always has to be somebody in authority and somebody in submission. You know this. All of us submit ourselves every day, all day, week in and week out. Every time you pull up to a stoplight and you stop, you have submitted yourselves to governing authorities. Every time you pay for something and you pay sales tax, you are submitting yourself willingly to authority. When you go to construct a new home and you adhere to building codes, you are submitting yourself to authority. When you're driving on the freeway and there's a double yellow line and you don't cross it, you are submitting yourself to authority. Now, if people choose not to, we have problems. If people come to a stoplight and say, I don't want to be submitted, 
We have problems. We have wrecks and crashes. People look at the lines on the freeway and say, I don't want to be submitted. We have problems. Someone always has to be in authority and someone always has to be in submission. That is the way that God has designed the world to work. And without that, there is no progress in society. Society doesn't move forward without an authority structure and people who are submitted to that structure. So headship then, the biblical concept thereof, has to do with order, and order is established on the submission authority principle revealed to us in Scripture. Now concerning headship, I want you to see very carefully, I want you to take note of what the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 11.3. We have it on PowerPoint here. It says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. We see it explained in the context of marriage in the text that we read of Ephesians 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Okay, here we go. The husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean? Well, I know what some of you ladies are thinking that means. Some of you ladies are thinking, oh, well, that's fine. The Bible says it. The husband may be the head, but the wife is the neck, and she could turn the head in any direction she wants. I've heard it. It's very cute. It's absolutely unbiblical. It's not what it means. I want you to notice the analogy that was given to us in 1 Corinthians 11.3, that God is the head of Christ. And yet we know by very basic theology that the Son and the Father are both God. They are both absolutely God. Colossians 2.9, In Christ Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He was fully God and fully man. And He is God, and He is equal to the Father. That is basic theology. If you don't have that, you have aberrant, unorthodox theology. Historical Orthodox Christianity says that God the Son is equal to God the Father. They are one. They are God together. But notice that there is an authority structure put in place even in the Godhead, that God is the head over Christ. The Son submits to the Father, but they are absolutely equal. Now that is analogous to the husband and the wife. It's said in our text, the man is the head of woman. The wife is called to submit, yes, but the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, are absolutely equal. They are absolutely equal in the sight of God. And so to discover how headship, headship works out in the marriage relationship, all we need to do is observe how it works out in the Godhead. That's the analogy given to us there in 1 Corinthians 11. So how does it work out between God the Son and God the Father? Four quick points about headship. Number one, headship involves a shared identity. Headship involves a shared identity as to nature. Did not Jesus Christ say in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Didn't He say in John 14, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Him and the Father are absolutely one. There's a shared identity as to nature. Now God said the same thing concerning marriage. 
In Genesis 2.24, God said, the two shall become one flesh. So in headship, there is this concept of shared identity. Secondly, there is a mutual cooperation as to work. There is a mutual cooperation as to work. Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. There were different roles, but there was a mutual sharing in the work as exemplified by Jesus under direction of the Father. And so it is in a marriage. There is to be a cooperation. There is to be a sharing of the work, though some differing responsibilities. The third point is, there is a mutual sharing of honor. In the idea of headship, there is a mutual sharing of honor as to person. Jesus said, I honor the Father and it is my Father who glorifies me. That's the same in marriage. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says to husbands, Husbands, grant your wives honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So there is a mutual sharing of honor. And lastly, there is an established authority within headship. There is an established authority as to the final decision on matters. Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. But they were absolutely equal. Not greater in nature. There they had a shared identity. But a different role that put the Father as the head and caused the Son to be submitted. So even within the Godhead, where there is absolute oneness, there are differing roles and different functions. And what we see is that Jesus Christ in His ministry here on earth willingly submitted Himself to the Father and the will of the Father. The same Jesus who said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth also said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. And He also said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And He also said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So in other words... Although Father and Son are the same in essence, and they are both equally God, they function in different roles. By God's own design, the Son submits to the Father. The Son's role is not a lesser role. That would be incorrect theology. He's the Redeemer. He's the Savior of the world. It is not a lesser role. It is merely a different one. Jesus Christ is in no sense inferior to the Father, but He willingly submits to the Father's headship. Now, these apply to headship in the context of marriage. There must be in marriage a shared identity. The two shall become one. There is inherent in that an equality, though there are differing roles. There must be mutual cooperation, a shared responsibility, though at times differing responsibilities. There is to be mutual sharing of honor and glory because they are equal. Husbands, grant your wives honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And there is to be, there must be in marriage, an established authority, which provides order because God is a God of order and which provides progress because apart from the submission authority principle being established, there is no progress. Now I want you to take very careful note of this fact, that there is absolutely nothing whatsoever in the biblical concept of headship 
that suggests for even one moment that one party is inferior to the other or that one is superior to another. There is nothing whatsoever in this biblical concept that suggests that. Would we all agree upon that? Okay, we agree upon that. It is simply God's template for order in His creation, and it demonstrates then that God is a God of order. Now, the second concept that we need to have a grasp on after headship is submission. Submission. First, we have to understand that the subcontext for all Christian relationships is mutual submission. As I said there in Ephesians 5.21, be subject one to another. Submit yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. The subcontext for every single Christian relationship is mutual submission. Now, there's a context here in Ephesians chapter 5 by which the Lord delivers to us these directives for marriage. We're not to simply start in verse 22, wives be subject to your husbands as unto the Lord. That is not the starting point. Nor can we rip out of the context the biblical ideal for marriage. We will go awry, we will go astray. There is a very important context in which then, by way of illustration, the Lord presents to us the biblical model for marriage. And that context starts in verse 15, of Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 15 it says, Therefore be wise how you work, or, or walk, excuse me, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The Bible tells us here that our time is limited, that this world is antichrist and becoming ever increasingly antichrist as the day of his appearing draws near. And so the directive for the Christian the context here is that we're to be very wise about how we live in an unbelieving world. And we are to discern, it says there in verse 17, what the will of the Lord is. And so then verse 18 reveals to us the will of the Lord. Verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And we learned in our study a couple weeks ago that the Greek verb there, the tense, dictates that the correct translation is be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a one-time gig. We need to be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the will of God for us in these last days. That is how we will discern further what His will is. That is how we will have wisdom to walk circumspectly at this moment in history where it is so critical for our Christian witness. Now the verses that follow give us the outflow of someone who is filled continually with the Holy Spirit. What the manifestation will be. What the evidence of a Spirit-filled life will be. And so we pick it up in verse 19. It says that we would be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we talked about the fact a couple weeks ago that the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the outflow is relational. It's relational. What a continual filling of the Holy Spirit does is brings relational rightness, both concerning the vertical relationship and our normal, numerous horizontal relationships. It says there that we be speaking to one another, which denotes fellowship. It says there that we should be uh, singing songs in our hearts, which denotes worship. Vertical relationship. 
Thanksgiving, vertical relationship. And then mutual submission, again, relational, having to do with how we deal with one another. And then the verses that follow on marriage are an illustration of what spirit-filled, relationally right Christianity living would look like in the most common context known to man, the family. Spirit-filled Christian living will look like these things as delineated in these verses about marriage. Now, as I said, the concept of mutual submission governs all Christian relationships. The Greek word, therefore, be subject to or submitted to simply has the idea of ranking oneself under another. Ranking oneself under another. Like in the military, where there are certain ranks, right? Like on a job site, where there needs to be a foreman, there needs to be a boss, just like anything else in the world. And so mutual submission has the idea that we willingly rank ourselves under others, and this governs all Christian relationships. This is supposed to be the core of how we interact. Now, it never in any way denotes any sort of superiority or inferiority. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 would refute that outright, where it says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians and you are one in Christ Jesus. There's no superiority. There's no inferiority. Now, obviously, there are still Jews and Gentiles. And in that age, there was slave and free. And obviously, there are men and women. You don't become androgynous, you know, or whatever. When you become a Christian, you become unisex. There are still men and women. What this is simply explaining to us is that in the Lord, we are all absolutely equal in status and in value. But there are differing roles and job descriptions. But not denoting inferiority, what mutual submission does denote very clearly is the idea of humility in the Christian life. Not inferiority or superiority, but humility. Exemplified wonderfully in Philippians 2, where it says, starting in verse 3, Do not be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. This is mutual submission exemplified for us. He was absolutely God. Had every right in the universe, but he willingly humbled himself for our benefit. And so the idea is that each Christian is to consider others as more important than themselves, to be concerned about the other's needs, and nowhere is this more potent or necessary than in the marriage context. Along those lines, and this holds true in any human relationship, let me say this. If in any relationship, but especially in marriage, you are looking to get your needs met, you will always be disappointed. 
If your goal in any relationship, especially marriage, is to get your needs met, you will always be disappointed. Because only Jesus Christ can meet your needs. There is not a man or a woman that has ever been created who can meet your needs. That is the sole job of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And if you begin to look to a person, a husband or a wife, to meet your needs, you are setting them up for failure. They can't do that. God never intended that they would do that. That is not their job description. They are not to meet your needs. And so if you're looking for that, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and you're setting others up for failure. It's totally contrary to the way of the cross to look to have our needs met. Didn't Jesus say, if anybody wants to follow me, they've got to deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. They've got to deny themselves is the basic premise of Christianity. But what happens so often in marriages, Christian and non-Christian alike, is people come into it saying, you better meet my needs. I have needs. Oh boy, do I have needs. And you had better meet them. And when you don't meet them, I'm going to be disappointed. Well, duh, you're going to be disappointed. Only Jesus Christ can meet your needs. Now, if you let yourself be satisfied in Jesus Christ, you can be satisfied with any person. You be satisfied with Jesus Christ and human relationships become so easy because your expectations and your hopes are no longer pinned on a person who will fail you. I've got news for you. If you're married, you're married to a sinner. If you're not yet married, i got news for you. You're going to marry a sinner. Pull your head out of the clouds. You're going to marry a sinner. And when someone marries you, they got themselves a sinner. But what is very obvious here again, and I want you to take note of this, is that there is no hint whatsoever in the idea of submission and mutual submission of someone being inferior or someone being superior. Do we agree on that? Nowhere here in the New Testament do we see that that is taught in the concept of headship or submission. Christ is not inferior to God. He is God. Women are not inferior to men. But there are roles that are to be, to, to be defined and mutual submission works in the context of these roles, never independent of them. One place where we see mutual submission applied to the marriage context immediately and very tangibly is in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 4. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4 says this, The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman. Nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority of her body to her husband, and the husband also gives authority over his body to his wife. That is the biblical ideal for mutual submission in the context of sexual relations in a marriage. Your body is no longer your own. You give authority of it over to your spouse. And your spouse gives authority over your body to you. Mutual submission. Now it plays out in the entirety of marriage, not just in the sexual relationship. In Ephesians 5.22, as if we could forget, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
But in Ephesians 5.25 it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the way that mutual submission plays out in the whole of the marriage context is this. Here's the way that the woman is called to submit. She is called to give in. Here's the way that the man is called to submit. He is called to give up. The woman is called to give in. But the man is called to give up. And both have got to be in submission according to the biblical ideal. Now, let's get down to the nitty gritty of it. What does it mean for a wife to submit? What does it mean? Well, number one, it means you need to humble yourself. You need to humble yourself. You need to realize that God has called you to submit to this man. He is not inferior, but God has called him to be the head of the marriage relationship. And in that, you must humble yourself, woman. It is absolutely necessary. All these prevalent ideas of feminism. I'm not against feminism, but I am against it when it perverts biblical ideals. It does not work in a Christian marriage. It is contrary to the heart of God and the Word of God. What does it mean for a woman to submit? Well, first she's got to humble herself and realize this is God's call on my life. I need to do this. I need to submit to this man. Secondly, it means this, very importantly. She needs to let the man lead. What does it mean for the woman to submit? It means that she lets the man lead. Now, the man's got to lead. No doubt about it. We'll talk about that. The man has got to lead. As a head, he is called to lead. But oftentimes, why the man has trouble leading is because the woman won't let him lead. Sometimes a woman just needs to back up off him for a minute and let him lead. Don't tell him where to park in the Vons parking lot. Don't tell him what street to take to get to the Granada Theater. Let the man begin to lead. Don't be a jackhammer on the back of his neck. Okay, he may not be the best leader. But are you giving him room to lead? Are you... Do you stop for long enough that he can think, that he can listen to the Lord, that he can meditate before the Lord, that he has an opportunity to lead? What does it mean for the woman to submit? It means that she backs up for a minute in life and purposes in her heart to let the man lead. Now listen, women, you cannot make him lead. Why have women not learned over 2,000 years of church history? You cannot change a man. Only the Holy Spirit of God can change a man. You can't make him lead. You can beat the cheese out of him. It won't make him a leader. God can do that and God will do that and God endeavors to do that because that is God's design. Sometimes it requires that the woman backs up, lets him be a man of God, get his footing, get his bearings, begin to hear from, listen, and respond to the Lord. Give him a little space. Now, in Genesis 3.16, it's the context of the fall of man. Okay, so man has sinned, and the consequences of sin are now entering in. And God is discussing this with Adam and Eve. And it says in Genesis 3.16, To the woman God said, 
I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children. One of the results of the fall, I'm very sorry, women, I've seen it, it's horrific. But look what he says here. Okay, this is also a result of sin. I want you to notice, a result of sin. He says, Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. An often misunderstood passage. We need to understand two words, desire and rule. Okay? Your desire shall be for your husband. That word desire means a desire to conquer. A desire to usurp authority. It's used in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 where God says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. But you must be master over it. You see, sin wanted to master Cain. And so that word desire is a desire to conquer. Now, because of the effects of sin, the fall of the heart of man and the heart of woman, there is always in the sinful heart of a woman a desire to rule over her husband. A desire to usurp his place of authority as ordained by God in the home. That is the heart of sinful woman. And even among Christian women, as we experience this proverbial struggle between the flesh and the spirit, walk according to the spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Well, one of the deeds of the flesh is, I want to rule this guy. I want him to do my will and I want to lead. And that is absolutely sinful. And as a result of the fall, it needs to be repented of as often as it enters into your heart and mind. But also that word rule for the man. It says, and he shall rule over you. This too is a sinful concept. Because that word rule has dictatorial, absolute, uncaring uses of authority pictured there. It means that in the sinful heart of man, there is this desire to rule harshly over the woman and it is sinful and it is wrong and any time that enters the heart or the mind of the Christian man he must repent of it as often as it does it is sinful and wrong it is a result of the fall just as it is a result of the fall that women want to rule over their husbands that's why it said in Colossians chapter 3 verse 18 wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord as makes sense in the Lord as is right in Christianity And that's why it says to the man in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Because there is a sinful propensity for the man to be harsh toward the woman. And it's sin. Harsh is the right translation. Some other translations read, Never treat them harshly. Do not be harsh with them. Be gentle with them. Do not abuse her. So the man is never to rule harshly. When he does, it's sinful. The picture of the man on the couch, barking orders at his wife, using crude and rude and mean and hurtful language is utterly deplorable before the Lord. That is never in the mind of God. It is sin that the man wants to rule harshly. But it is sin that the woman wants to rule at all. And so what does it mean for the woman to submit? That she steps back? and gives the man room to lead. Thirdly, what does it mean for the woman to submit? To allow the man to have the last say in decision-making. This is always true 
in society. There's always got to be a final authority. When there's conflict, that's why we have courts of law. That's why we have the Word of God. When there is conflict and two can just not agree, there will never be forward progress unless someone has been established as the head. Unless someone has been put in a place of authority and another person is willing to submit. There will be no forward progress and we see this in marriages all the time. They just can't, get, they just can't agree and the woman won't submit and the man doesn't have room to lead and so there is never any forward progress. And it decays into chaos and anarchy in the hearts of men and women in their marriage relationship. And so when there is conflict, and when men and women are doing this right, there doesn't always have to be. But when there is a disagreement, the biblical model is that the woman gives in and lets the man have the final say. Now, I know what you're thinking and we're getting to it. But fourthly, what does it mean for the woman to submit? It means to support the man in his leading and decisions. Listen to me very carefully on this point. It is not an issue of who is wrong or who is right. That is not the issue here. The issue is headship. It is not an issue of who is wrong, who is right, the man or the woman. The issue is the man is called to lead and to have the final say, and the woman is called to submit. And submission is an issue of the heart. It is not submission. If you say, fine, what an idiot. Gosh. Make your own dinner. Gosh. And you call somebody up and you start to say how awful your husband is. That is not submission. That is sin. True submission is able to subject itself to authority even when authority is not necessarily right. Even when they don't necessarily agree with authority, true submission is able to come under that headship because it is dictated by humility, not who is right or who is wrong. You understand that? And so the call on the woman is to support her husband in, her, in his leading and in his decisions. He may not be the best leader. He might not be making the best decisions, but the call of God on your life is to support him. And I got to tell you, it will make a world of difference when you support him in the difficult times, when he's confused, when he's unsure, when he's trying, when he's barely surviving, and you support him and stand with him and by him and behind him, it will change his world. It will change his world. It means nothing when he's absolutely right and you submit and say, good job, honey. But when he is struggling in leading and when he's struggling in decision making and you stand by your man, it changes his world because you are designed for that very thing. Fifthly, I know what you're thinking and we're getting to it in a minute. Fifthly, what does it mean for the woman to submit? It means to do it as an act of adoration unto the Lord. That's why it says in Ephesians 5, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. This frees you from the reality of how cheesy your husband might be. You do it as to the Lord. As to the Lord. For the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord because you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. As to the Lord. You say, Lord... This is just the hardest thing in the world. This is difficult. But your word says it, and so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it as an act of adoration. I'm going to do it praise and worship unto you. Now that ought to change your attitude. 
Because you cannot praise and worship the Lord with a bad attitude, with grumbling and complaining and with sneering and backbiting. That ought to change the whole way that you submit, ladies. Because it is to be, by biblical definition, an act of worship to the Lord. I'm doing this for you, Jesus, and because of who you are and what you've done. Now, the final part that I know you've been thinking about for the women, what does it mean for them to submit? It means to do it despite the man's performance. You say, well, he's not leading. Or he's leading horribly. This guy is an idiot. You do it despite the man's performance or capabilities. There are no qualifiers here attached. The woman is to submit. It is not qualified. In other words, it's not that you're to submit only if he's smarter than you. It's not that you're to submit only if he's wiser than you. Only if he's got more discernment than you. Only if he's more spiritual than you. There are no such qualifiers in the Bible. You may be smarter than him. You may have more wisdom than him. You may be more spiritually mature than him. You may have more discernment than him. The call of God for you is to submit to him. And if you tell me that you're spiritually mature and wise and intelligent but refuse to submit to your husband, I don't believe you. Because that is a clear teaching of the Word of God. It has nothing to do with his capabilities or lack thereof or his performance. That is not the issue. And such is delineated for us in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You see, it's never in marriage, I'll do what I'm supposed to do if you do what you're supposed to do. You treat me right, I'll treat you right. Reciprocity here. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You fulfill your role, then I'll fulfill mine. That is not right, that is sin, that is wrong. It is I choose to do the right thing before God independent of your performance. That is the biblical model. And that, women, is your prescription for dealing with a man who isn't doing it right. Now the world would say all sorts of other things. The world would have a whole list and a litany of things to say that you ought to do that are contrary to that. And the flesh would love to tongue lash this, just, ugh. But the Bible says the way that you invite the Holy Spirit into the situation is that you continue to submit even when his performance is poor or his capabilities are lacking or his discernment is not there. You continue to submit. So even if he's being disobedient to the word, he will be one as he observes your chaste behavior. Not as he hears your nagging words. As he observes your chaste behavior. That is the prescription given to us by God and that is the only thing that invites the Holy Spirit into that situation to work. When you women say, wow, my husband is not pulling it off, but I am going to totally pull my role off and just submit and, and, and behave correctly, I'm telling you, it invites the Holy Spirit into the situation. And the Holy Spirit through that will open the man's eyes and will bring him to a place of repentance. 
to a place of restoration with the Lord. And then the Lord will bring him to a place of being a more effective leader. Now, it's the man's turn. What does it mean for the husband to submit? 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 Britt, did you say submit? Did you say the husband to submit? You better believe I did. All Christian relationships are governed by the concept of mutual submission. And the marriage explanation in Ephesians 5 is given to us in the context of mutual submission. There are roles that function inside of that. But the husband also has a role in submission. Let me explain it to you. It says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband submits by having an unselfish, devoted love for the wife. Unselfish and devoted. The verb here is agapeo in the Greek, from the noun agape. You guys have heard of this, agape love. It's used several ways in the New Testament. It can be used in negative instances as well. But it's often used to describe God's love for us. The husband is to love his wife, agapeo, with this sort of love. Now, in the Greek language, there's a, a few words for love. One is eros. Eros It's where we get our word erotic. It has to do with physical things, with physical attraction. And this has often been called the if love. It is very self-focused. It's called the if love. I love you if you continue to look this way. I love you if you continue to do these things. Eros, this sort of love, will not stand the test of time. It will not endure when gravity sets in. It is self-focused and it is focused on the exterior and it is fleshly. The if love. I love you if you always look this way. It's not realistic. There's another word. Phileo in the Greek. Often described as brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This has to do with an emotional and intellectual connection. It's not so much fleshly, it's emotional and intellectual. But it is also very self-centered. And this has often been called the because love. I love you because you meet certain emotional needs for me. I love you because you connect with me intellectually. I love you because of these characteristics. But you see, it won't endure the test of time because people change. And minds decay, as do bodies. And people often become incapacitated. And this love is based upon certain intellectual, emotional properties and characteristics. I love you because they are there. But when they aren't there, I don't love you anymore. The love described here that the man must adhere to is agape love, the verb agapeo. It is the only one that is other-focused, not self-focused. It is a love that chooses to love continuously in every situation and all the time. And because of that, it has been called the anyway love. It's not, I love you if you look like this. I love you because you do that. It's, I love you anyway. But honey, 
look at me, I'm getting so old and I just, I'm just sagging everywhere. Honey, I love you anyway. I burnt the dinner nine nights in a row. I love you anyway. I overdrew the checkbook, $2 million. I love you anyway. It is I love you anyway, no matter what comes your way. This is how the man is called to submit. It is an act of his will that he chooses to love the woman till death do them part. Aren't those the vows you took or will take? It expects nothing in return. It is centered on others and not self. It has right motives and it is not a feeling. It is an act of the will. It is not a feeling. It is an act of the will. There may be certain feelings that come along with it, but it is not predicated upon or dictated by feeling. It is a choice, a reasoned, Holy Spirit-inspired, empowered choice. I will always love you anyway. And this love makes the object of such love feel valuable and wanted. Isn't that how we feel when we experience the love of Jesus Christ? When we realize how great a salvation we have. Doesn't it make you feel so valued and wanted that he bled on the cross for you, that he draped himself in humanity? That is the job of the man, to make his wife in that sort of love feel valuable and wanted. And when the man is practicing that, it absolutely destroys a false idea that the world wants to attach to the biblical submission authority principle in marriage. The world wants to say that the Bible teaches that the man is to lord it over her and to harshly rule and that the wife is to just cower and just, ugh. The Bible doesn't teach that, does it? Do we all agree this morning? The Bible never in any way whatsoever teaches that. Agape love is not dominating. It is sacrificial love. It never has to say, woman, you submit. It never has to say that. Because it gave itself up long before it came to that. Now, it says that he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a major exercise of the husband in mutual submission. As I said earlier, the woman is called to give in, but the man is called to give up. He is to lay down his life for his bride. It's interesting to me that when you go to a wedding, the groom is always dressed in black. If you notice that. The groom wears black. And where is the groom before the bride is ever on the scene? Where is the groom? He's at the altar. That is always where the groom is waiting for the bride. At the altar. Now the altar in all times and all places speaks of sacrifice. And the fact that the groom is wearing black speaks of death. It was an invention by the early first century church who understood that we the church, the bride of Christ, are only made pure and spotless by the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that marriage is, in the final analysis, to be a reflection of and a representation of the relationship between Jesus and the bride, the church. And so they understood that inherent in the idea of marriage is that the man must die. And so the man is at the altar, the place of sacrifice and death, and he is wearing black, signifying death. Bringing to life that scripture, 1 Corinthians 5.21. 
concerning Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, black if you will, on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The bride does not enter until the groom is in black and on the altar. And then, when he is on the altar, when he is dead and surrendered and given himself up, then the bride enters and she only wears white because she is to be pure and spotless. And so the blood of Jesus Christ has made you and I the church. And so the love of the man is to be to the woman. How does a man submit, you say? By giving himself up entirely. And there ought to be in the heart of every Christian husband an unspoken checklist of how and how often you give yourself up for your bride. Oh man, if you are racking your heart and your brain right now to think of the last time, it's been far too long. There ought to be in the heart and the mind of every man a private, unspoken checklist of how often you give yourself up. You wanted to go hang out with the guys that night, but you knew your wife wanted you at home, so you gave that up. You wanted to spend those couple of days surfing. You knew your wife needed you, so you gave that up. You wanted to have that thing in the house. You knew it wasn't pleasing to your wife, so you gave it up. You wanted to have a relationship with this person, but you knew that that made your wife feel insecure, so you gave it up. You died to it. You crawled back on the altar and dressed yourself in black, and you died to self once again that your bride might live. There's a calling on the man. Yes, the wife is called to give in, but the husband is called to give himself up completely in all instances throughout life. He is to be the first to die in the relationship. It's interesting if we note from the Scriptures what was accomplished when Christ gave Himself up for the church. What was accomplished? What did He accomplish? He sanctified the church when He gave Himself up. He glorified the church when He gave Himself up. And He fulfilled the mystery of His own being when He gave Himself up. And so it says in verse 26, verse 25, having given himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, having sanctified her. Now, sanctified in the spiritual context has certain connotations, but basically it means this, to be set apart apart for the thing which you were created to do, to be set apart for the purpose intended for you, okay? Okay? Now, how does God set us apart for that purpose? He washes us with His Word. When we're veering in the wrong direction, we open up the Word, He washes us. You know, your mind and your spirit needs to be washed just like your body. He washes you and it restores you to a right place and it brings you into that purpose for which you were made. The Lord accomplishes that work of sanctification by His Word to us. Now, listen to me. Husbands are to sanctify their wives... Or in other words, keep them in the place of being used for that which they were created by their words to their wives. By their communication to their wives. Why? What do you mean, Britt? What are you saying? Genesis 2.18. 
The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's very interesting to me that God created all things and he looked at everything and he said, good and very good. And then he looked at the man and he said, ooh, not good. He saw ostriches and pigs and muskrats and said, good and very good. And he saw the man and said, not good. Incomplete. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is the purpose for which God made women. It does not denote inferiority. That is a worldly concept. Rid it from your heart. God created the woman to be the helper to the man. How can she help the man be sanctified, be functioning in the role God purposed for her? How can she help the man be sanctified unless the man invite her in with his words? Unless he communicate to her his heart, his desires, his fears, his excitement, the daily mundane things of his job, so on and so forth. And this is a huge chasm between men and women. So much of how a woman communicates is communi- or, or so much of how a woman um, connects is communicative. Men, you touch something, woo woo, connected. You touch the woman, baby, I'm so connected with you. I got news for you guys, not so for the woman. Apart from communication, it is meaningless. It is meaningless. That's why women are able to be, well, never mind. Don't laugh, that was not funny. That was not at all funny. It's heartbreaking. God has so designed women that they need communication and they need communication from the man. And the man sanctifies the woman to her God-intended purpose when he involves her in his heart and his life with his communication. When he deprives her of communication, there is a disconnect that leads to frustration because she's not able to be a helper because she doesn't know what you're about. She doesn't know what you think and feel and fear and do all day. And how many husbands come home and say, I had a hard day and a long day and I don't want to talk about it. She needs to know about it. She's been waiting all day. And it is designed in her by God that she needs to know. And so here's what I do every day when I'm driving home. I pray, God, give me something for my wife. God, I'm completely drained. But you have called me to sanctify my wife by my words. So give me communication for my wife. Give me energy. Give me insight. Help me to connect with her communicatively that she might be sanctified to be my helper as I let her in. Men, it is not okay to go home and just be silent because you're exhausted. I know, I know, I understand. I know. Maybe you and your wife discuss, honey, I come home, I need an hour. I need an hour to just catch my breath and then I'm going to tell you everything. Brother, you had better make good on your end of the bargain. If you don't, you cut her out of her life and it only leads to frustration. She doesn't know how to be your helper because you've never let her in. That's why 1 Peter 3, 7 says, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. As with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honors a fellow heir of grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. There are grave consequences when you do not understand the communicative needs of your wife and meet them. What did Christ's sacrifice do for the church? It glorified her. Verse 27. 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. He washed us in the blood by the sacrifice. He has glorified us. By his sacrifice, he makes us spotless, without blemish. A spot's a blemish. Without wrinkle, it's a blemish. Men, you must choose to love your wives in such a way that they become spotless in your heart and in your mind. Your love should beautify her. You need to choose to love her in such a way that you see the beauty in her and not the flaws. There he will be there. But you need to love her with such a love that it makes her feel beautiful. That it evokes beauty in her. That's the calling on a man is to love in that way. To love in such a way that it brings glory. Now let me say, we're called to love our wives, not to nitpick them. And nothing could be more destructive. And you've got to be really careful with a person like me. See, I'm a type A personality and I'm a type D, if you're familiar with the DISC personality ideas. It's basically, let me give it to you in a nutshell, worst case scenario. You see everything wrong and you're willing to beat everybody's head over it. Worst case scenario in a marriage or any other relationship is what Britt Merrick is. I need to realize that my call is to love her in such a way that it brings the beauty out of her and not to nitpick her. I could nitpick her to death. You have no understanding. I don't think we fathom how powerful our words are in the context of marriage. She is a weaker vessel. You can crush her with your nitpicking. We are not called to nitpick our spouses. I'll say the same thing to the women. You are not called to nitpick him. That is the job of the Holy Spirit, and only he knows how to do it rightly, gently and over time. You don't know how to do it. It's not your job. We are not called to nitpick each other. If you are nitpicking your spouse, you had better repent today. If you are seeing flaw after flaw, brother, we need to have a chat and hold a mirror up to you. If she bugs you, you need to have a reality check today. You think you don't bug her? You think you don't bug her? She's a woman. She is fine and refined and you are just as far from a pig. You're a man. You don't think you bug her in a multitude of ways? We're not called to nitpick each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. We are called to love each other anyway, in spite of those things. And if you are endeavoring to change your spouse, you are setting yourself up for failure. Only God can change a man or a woman. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. He transforms life. Yours is simply to love men and women. It is simply to love. And if anything else is happening, you've got to repent of that today. And the very last point is this. Christ's sacrifice for the church fulfilled the mystery of his own being, that we have become the body of Christ. Verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, just as 
The church is the body of Christ. A husband and a wife become one flesh, one in union, one in nature. And so men, you need to understand that when you do destructive things to your marriage relationship, you do destructive things to you. That's the nature of the design. Your sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is destructive to the union. It is destructive to the both of you. And so the command to you and I and the example is Jesus Christ is to nourish and to cherish our wives. Nourish is that idea of of, of providing the right things to bring about growth. Bringing nutrients and nourishment and care that brings growth and to cherish, to hold and to value and to cuddle and to cuddle and to protect. It's a calling on the man. It's what God does with the church. We're called to nothing less since we are one with our wives. And this is the last thing I'll say is this. Please do not miss this point. Every other relationship is to be subordinate to your relationship with your spouse, except for your relationship with Jesus Christ. Every single one. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Every other relationship must take second place to the relationship with your spouse, except for Jesus Christ. The priority and order of life is Jesus Christ, my spouse, everything else. She must take priority over your mom and dad, your brother and sister, your son and your daughter and your best friend. Your wife is to have priority and honor. And if she doesn't know that, she's insecure. She must know that. You must verbalize to your wife, you are first in my life after Jesus Christ. You are number one and I am choosing to be with you forever and to love you anyway. Jesus Christ makes us absolutely secure in His love, evidenced by the blood and the covenant by which we've been saved. The job of the husband is to make his wife absolutely secure in His love. That means that you visually and tangibly make subordinate every other relationship and human. You never show preference or honor to anybody at any time above your wife. That is a grievous sin. And let me just say this, and this holds true for the husband and wife. Do not ever complain to your mother and father about your marital problems. Do not ever have a fight with your husband and pick up the phone and call daddy. Because let me tell you what happens. Daddy will always side with his baby girl. Always. I will. He will always. And you will hang up the phone and five minutes later you might go kiss and make up with your husband. But all that his father-in-law is thinking now is that dirty, rotten bum. I can't believe the way that he's treating my daughter. He doesn't see the kiss and make up. He doesn't experience the renewed intimacy and the grace and the forgiveness. And what Satan does is enter into the family then and cause division. And it will be a sad Thanksgiving and a sad Christmas in your house. If you have ever done that, you need to repent to your spouse. If you are currently doing that, you need to repent to your mother and father. You shall leave them and shall cleave to, be glued to, become one with your spouse. And everybody else comes next. Your spouse must know that they have priority. And husbands, you've got to defend that bride against every attack. You must defend her like a valiant warrior. 
She is God's little girl and he has entrusted her to your care and she must feel cherished, nourished and protected and loved and covered. And if you don't do it, Satan will come into her heart and breed an insecurity that will bring hell into your life. I believe that the strongest witness that we could have in society today is to have a Christian marriage. I think it is the strongest witness for Jesus Christ. It is in the final summation and reflection of Christ in the church. And it is that thing which society is now attacking more violently, vehemently, and aggressively than any other front. The God-ordained ideals of marriage. The greatest witness that you can be in this world is to have a biblical marriage. The only way that you can do that is to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a prerequisite. You must be filled with the Spirit of God. You must ask, cry, and beg God, fill me to overflowing. You must confess that these things are impossible in your own strength. They are not possible, men. You cannot do this, woman. You need the power of God who is the person of the Holy Spirit. And you remember from our lesson two weeks ago, the way that we grieve the Spirit of God is by relational problems. And so here's a protocol. Married or non-married, if you've been thinking about marriage wrong or doing marriage wrong, I want you to come and repent on your knees before the Lord today. Grab your spouse. Listen. Listen. If your spouse is very humble and gracious. They haven't elbowed you during this sermon. But in their heart and in their mind, oh yes, preach it, Brit. Oh, tell them. <laughs> oh, Brit, tell them. They know where you're blowing it. You know where she's blowing it. Why don't you get it on the table? Repenting. Why don't you come and kneel with your bride at the altar and whisper in her ear, Honey, I am sorry. Honey, forgive me for A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Sweetheart, I am sorry. Repent to one another. And repent before God. And then I suggest that you take communion, which reminds us of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and that His blood removes every spot and stain and every sin. And then I suggest that you walk over to the prayer team and we'll have several couples over here with strong marriages to pray for you. That you walk to the prayer team and you say, we need the Holy Spirit. And they will lay hands on you and pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit. And in faith, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and transform your marriage. Lord, bring us to that place now, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, these things are overwhelming apart from the strength of your spirit. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd lead our hearts, you'd direct our emotions, our feelings, our fears, our repentance. We want to do real business with you right now, Lord. So Lord, please come and move powerfully in the hearts of men and women. For those who wish they were married, Lord, would you comfort them with the goodness of your word and the goodness of your plan and the fact that you are wed to them. For those that are looking forward to getting married, would you just really convict them, Holy Spirit, of the biblical idea and cast out any worldliness. 
And for those marriages that need to get right, come and do a miracle, God. Come and do a miracle, Holy Spirit. 